Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Wednesday night. I'm going to do the uh, Tefillah podcast uh, of the Mishpacha Stefanski, as always. And this week is Tisha B'Av. I just got back from a scene. Somebody, my showmate, the Kleinberg, Zavrami Kleinberg and his wife. They made it on the Yuma. It was very nice. Uh, I'm usually not a seeing person, but I'm of the opinion of somebody in your show actually finishes the Masechta that's a cover the Torah thing. Um, so, miles up to now. Now, this week it's Tisha B'Av, so I want to do Nachim, right? Uh, which, of course, is going to be part of the Shemun Esri on Sunday. Uh, Nachim is an ancient uh, <coughs> a prayer. And um, if you know the history, there are many Nusachos. Let me put it this way. In some Nusachs, they do Nachim three times. You and I do by Mincha. Isn't that right? Ashkenazim and Mosfardim. At least that's my understanding. Just do by Mincha. There are other traditions that they did uh, three times, and I believe in ancient times this was part of the regular Shemun Esrei in some places. Here we deal with the question of uh, Nuschos, and uh, obviously we know today of Ashkenaz and Sephard, but then there's Sephard and Sephard, among others. So Ashkenaz and Sephard are both Ashkenazic, when you say Sephard, like Maishol is a Hasidish, and then Sephard, the Sephardim. And you got your Italians, your Yemenites, and so on and so forth. Although they're they're a little smaller, uh, Romania and, and that business. Nachim goes back to the Yerushalmi, which means, I think in Brachas, uh, that means that we have a prayer here that we recite on uh, Tishvab at least, which is not Ashkenaz, not Sparta predates at all. It's what you call Nusach Eretz Yisrael. Uh, probably don't know what I'm talking about. In um, ancient times, the two predominant Nusos were Bavala and Israel, because those were the two main centers of Jews once upon a time. And when Jews moved abroad, they usually brought them and hung them with them. And so you find a lot of shuls in a lot of different places in the Mediterranean area, some of which followed the Babylonian custom, and some the Israeli custom. So this is Eretz Israel post based on Migdash. Obviously, something like Nachim is, but the whole Nusach Eretz Yisrael is post Mesamigdash. It's a fascinating topic for historians if you're the type of historian that's interested in questions of Nusach. Okay? You know, not everybody is. Uh, the place to go for this is to get the Simcha Asa book, The uh, Sitter of Sadigon, which he edited and published with notes. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, that's the best place to start. Uh, Sadigon, of course, being a a Babylonian Jew. Now, Sadigon was originally from uh, Egypt, but obviously he died in the Babylonian shul. And when he moved to Bubba later on in his life and took over the yeshiva there in Baghdad, he already was following Babylonian minhagim. So the shul he grew up in most likely had uh, Bavel minhag. Uh, Nachim was not part of that. Isn't that interesting? On the other hand, there was something called Eretz Yisrael minhag, which is not around anymore. 
which was there for many centuries. The problem, my friends, is that Jews are wiped out in Israel. <laughs> as simple as that. By the time they get to the Crusades, they exterminate all the Jews in Israel. So even though other Jews moved there later, but um, they brought outside Menhagen with them, it's not the Minnach Eretz Israel anymore. That's a sad. One of the oldest books around, post-Talmudic, is something called Chalufim Menhagen, Ben Ben Eretz Israel Ben Bobo, which the title tells you different Menhagen, the two Nuschos. Because in the Middle Ages, the early Middle Ages, the two Jewish centers were Israel and Babylonia, Babylonia being the predominant one. The Gaonic Yeshivas, of course, were located in Babel. There were Gaonic Yeshivas, or there were attempts to make Gaonic Yeshivas in Israel, and it didn't work out. Right? That's why most people never heard about it. Unless you're a Bucky and Sadigon, you know about the fights he had with Iron Ben Mayer, but nobody's heard of Iron Ben Mayer. Everybody's heard of Sadigon. So that's my point. So it's not surprising that already in the Eretz Yisrael custom, we'd have a special prayer on Tishabot, Nachim, and it's very immediate and raw. Reflecting the Israeli reality, no, this is not something imagined. Look what it says: Avelit Nachem Mitzvelatzim Ve'Yisholayim Ho'ira Avela Chariva B'Zui V'Shamema. I mean, this kind of description sounds like an eyewitness. Avela Chariva B'Zui V'Shamema. A Jew. L- l- let me see this: the Jews who lived in Eretz Yisrael and who composed out of whose circles emerged the Nusra Eretz Yisrael. Were the ones living under the Roman Empire and the um, Eastern, particularly the Byzantine Empire. Um, I'm actually giving a talk about this on July 31. I'm planning in Tinek. I hope to be a scholar in residence in Tinek. So um, these Jews uh, were not allowed to go to Yerushalayim for 500 years. It was a pagan city, then a Christian city. And so when this prayer was, was um, made, Jews could only look from a distance you know, and talk about what Yerushalayim was, and to them was, show, you know, Shomeba, Chareva, and so forth. Now, it wasn't. It wasn't. The city was actually built up. Those who go to Yerushalayim now, and you visit the Cardo and all that business, that's from the times I'm talking, from the Roman, from the Byzantine times. So Jerusalem was a prosperous city, uh, and a lot of pilgrims and all this kind of junk, but they were Christians, you see? Jews were not let in. If you paid off the guards... They would let you come in for a few minutes on Tisha, but once a year, to cry and daven there, and then you had to leave. So, a Jew, looking at the city, even as prosperous, looking through Jewish lenses, he doesn't say, hey, the city's built up. The Romans and the Byzantines are building churches, they're building marketplaces, they're building cardos and all this kind of stuff. Name. What do you mean the city's prospering? And then, I'm trying to show you the original historical background of this. And Israeli would say, You see what he just said? It's not physically because physically the city was flourishing. I'll say it again. When the Romans reconstructed the city starting in the time of Hadrian, and then it only intensified when the Roman Empire switched to Christian in the 300s, so the city was flourishing, strictly from a Gaisha perspective. There are stories that they cover up the Kotel with the, the Donga Mount, or is it true or not, maybe. Uh, but there's nothing Jewish there. And for a Jew, he said like this, there's no covenant in it. Uh, because if it's Ain Yoshe, there's no Jews in it. So as far as the Jew is concerned, the city's empty. No, nobody's living there. Of course he knew tens of thousands of people lived there. 
Nobody's living there. This is a, a, a muster to us. When we look today, Yushalayim, you're supposed to look at a certain lenses. Get it? The reason I mention it is because it's very interesting to me. If you're old enough, you may possibly recall that after the Jews captured the city in 67, in the Six-Day War, there was a sense of triumphalism. Rabbi Gorin and others said that you should stop saying Nachim. You can't say Abzumen Yosheb or whatever it is because the Jews are here. As a matter of fact, the Jews are now the majority of the city. Um, and they were spreading everywhere and they set up the Kotel. They knocked down all the Arab houses in front of the Kotel. They got away with whatever they wanted to do. And so the feeling was of triumphalism in that now, um, you know, uh, knocking doesn't fit the reality. Now, unfortunately, that sense of triumphalism, for quite understandable and correct reasons, lasted about five minutes, a couple of years. In a few years, it was pretty clear the Arabs ain't leaving. We don't control the city. Israel sort of controls it. We sort of control the Harabites. We do and we don't. You know what I mean? And this is even more true as we speak, because as time goes by, the Arabs in the world are working overtime to sort of uh, limit Israel's uh, presence in the city, and so on and so forth. You know, it's not Donald Trump all the time. <laughs> no, it's five minutes. The other administrations in UN and all this other junk, little by little, are going to try to pry the fingers of Jerusalem from of Israel from Jerusalem. And frankly, this government now is going to be under tremendous pressure. Plenty of Israelis feel that way. And I hate to say this, as I mentioned the other day, perhaps you saw the headline, I think they said 20% or 25% of American Jews feel that Israel's an apartheid state. So that one quarter of American Jews want to give it Yerushalayim because Israel doesn't even have a right to exist. And the other three quarters... It's not so partial that they want to hold Yerushalayim at all. If you say, if you give it up in exchange for a peace treaty, they'll do it. Ah, you and I know the treat, peace treaty to be baloney. But, you know, uh, uh, what's the right word? Wishful thinking predominates. These are all sad things to think about during the nine days. In my opinion, they relate the nine days from long ago to the current situation. One can't simply say, in my opinion, well, it's happened thousands of years ago. It's just commemorative, etc., etc., any holiday we have is cyclical. It comes back every year, and uh, it's there all years. But once in a, once in a while, you have to think about these matters. If you think about it all the time, you get depressed, and that's counterproductive. But once a year, you have to think about it. You know, one season of the year, you have to think about the fact that Israel's holding Jerusalem is tenuous. I, I wish I was wrong. It is totally possible that, what are we, in 2021? It's totally possible that in 2021, 2022, 23. Israel will sign some kind of treaty and withdraw from East Jerusalem, make it the capital of Palestinian. You don't know, especially with this current government. I mean, you don't know. Don't believe what the politicians say. You know that. The broad issues are what they are. So, no longer is anybody speaking in a triumphalist sense and saying, well, the prayer of Nachim, although it was composed long ago, is no longer quite relevant. We have to modify the language because now we're holding on to Yerushalayim and we control everything and all the rest of it. My friends, you look around a lot of parts of Yerushalayim, and I'm sorry to say, but you can still say, and you think about neighbors, you can go in, you can't go in. You're still talking about Avelo, Bachareva, Bezui, Bashameba, Avelo, Mibli Yoshev, Chareva, Menasa, and so on and so forth. And when it says, He Yoshev is Roshachafoy, Kishakar Shal Yolada. It's just very interesting. I'll say again, 
from the external perspective, he Yoshev is Rosh Hashanah. That was not true. Jerusalem, as I understand it, was was actually a well built up city in the Roman times, right? But from the Jewish perspective, whoever wrote this was Eretz Yisrael to get you, and from Eretz Yisrael to get you, Isha Karshalo Yelado, right? No children. That's the language Mamashonushami, because this is composed by someone who lived under the Roman Empire, and there was a legion, the legions. Yes, that was the unit of the Roman army. This is just what it is. Now, if you want to get very technical, the Jews have been a majority in Israel for quite some time now. I mean in Yushalayim. Ever since the 1700s, the Jews have, the late 1700s, there's a whole story behind it, but skipping that, ever since the late 1700s, my understanding is that Jews have been the largest single ethnic group. So in other words, if you went in 1800, 1850, they're in aggregate more Goyim, a lot more Goyim than Jews, but since the Goyim were all divided up into groups, the Muslims, the uh, the Christians, the Greek Orthodox, the Armenians and all that business, Coptic, so all those groups, the largest individual was the Jewish, right? Today, since 48, the Jews have been actually the physically, the numerically the largest, even before 48, if you want to get down to it, okay? Numerically the largest. All that is true. But it could change overnight. They're trying to outbaby us, and um, they're trying to control the neighborhoods, uh, the whole Sheikh Jarrah business. And, you know, the liberals are siding with the Arabs, and it is what it is. So there's plenty to say Nachimon today, and in fact it would be restructured, in my opinion, to mourn the Jews. Who are be- there are plenty of Jews who are Bezuya Shamema. You understand? Know I mean, I'm sorry to say it. Okay, there are plenty of Jews like that, and uh, you know Yeshua of the Azarim, that's the Jews. And when it says Vayitil Samchi Yisrael Lachar Vayargu Bezana Chasidi Elyon, he's recalling the fact that they killed all the Chasidi Elyon. I mean. That's true, but to tell you the honest truth, most Jews were killed by other Jews during the siege of Jerusalem. So this is the language from the Nusach of Eretz Yisrael. It's one, there aren't many, it's one which spread to all Kal Yisrael for Tishvah purposes. It's not surprising that Eretz Yisrael would have its take. Um, by the way, this is the same Nusach which um, did the three-year cycle. They didn't have Simchas Torah. It's a different Judaism. <laughs> Not radically different, but you know what I'm saying. Um, you know, did, did one-third of the each week with a Maturgamut. On the other hand, it's ironic. Believe me, doing one-third of the with a Maturgamut takes a lot longer than doing the whole Parsha we do today without a Maturgamut. <laughs> Agreed? And this was an era in which they love to add extra Putin. They love to add Putin. This is Yana and Eleazar Kaliri and all the others. They liked it. So it wasn't looking like they're trying to get out of show. But they had a different angle to it. A different angle. And uh, they felt the religious poetry should give the highest expression to the national soul. Uh, we, today, have adopted the custom of doing... Um, Nachim, as you know. By the way, in some notes, it's, it's, it's Rachim. So it's it's a little bit like the benching, you know what I mean? When they stuck in Rachim, I don't know about Yisrael and Mechel, Yerushalayim, Rechel, Valtzim, Meshkan, Podecho. 
really, I mean, we, we say it by rote, you know, so we just rattle through. When you say Rachim, you're also supposed to do that. It was to think about the, destroy, the destroyed temple. Isn't that right? Rachim, I'll see him, Mishkan, Kodecho, Fais, I got up a Kodesh, Nikashim, Kolov, Elohim, Virein, Zerein, I mean, all that. Um, you know as well as I do, the law which says you have to remove the silverware because you might kill yourself from um, depression when you think about that. You understand? Um, so, it's, it's weird. Uh, but here's the point I wanted to make. In some Nusuchs, they would say Nachim all three times. I think there's some Nusuchs they said every day. They mix it together like Menachem Tzina Boni Yushalayim. The old Boni Yushalayim used to be different. In many Nusuchs of the ancient Eretz type, they literally had 18 brachas and not 19. If you ask me how you do that, they used to combine Uvnei Yerushalayim and Estemach into one bracha. So, I can only imagine that they felt that 18 should be stick 18. You know, it's a different sensibility that even though we call it 18 brachas, we add an extra one. <laughs> That's very Jewish, you know. Even though it's 18, we're going to do 19. But many had a, a sensibility, 18 should be 18. Uh, and in that context, they would say, Menachem Tzina, Boni Yerushalayim, or some variation of that sort of thing. Uh, we have adopted the policy of doing it all by Mincha. Why? Excuse me. This has to do with um, a famous notion, which is out there, and that has to do with the um, contradictory nature of Tishon. Somebody asked me a show tonight. It's a Moed, it's a fast day, what is it? You know, some halachas have to do with, with Sukkot being a, I mean, with Tishon being a Moed. Others obviously have to do with a fast day. The simple, plain, and push shot would be that one day there'll be a, a moe. But on the other, I mean, you know, because the prophet Zachary says, one day Tzoma Siri and all that business will be L'Sasun L'Simcha. Um, in a later development, there developed um, the concept, the idea, that the Mashiach is born in Tisha B'Av. Um There's a message like that. And the Ramban, where they had his famous debate with Pablo, back in the 1200s, was challenged on this because the guy, well, Babla was a Meshumid, he said, you know, are we debating whether the Messiah has come or is he not come and will come? And we Christians say the Messiah has already come. And Ramban said, fine. And he said, oh, I'll prove you wrong. Because it says the Messiah was born on Shishabov. There's such a madrish. See, he came. And Ramban had to wiggle out of it. I mean, not he didn't really have to wiggle out, but he's talking to Goyim. So he had to say, well, it didn't say he came yet, it just said he was born. Okay? If you read the Bikuch Ramban, you'll see the Ramban says, I don't take these things necessarily literally. They're sermons. Uh, they don't have to be taken literally at face value. And then the Christians say, oh, you're you're uh, dissing your own books. And then the Ramban doled down. Fine, I'll have it your way. I won't diss the books. But I'll, be, I'll play it your way. It doesn't say he came. It just says Mashiach was born. And the king asked him, well, that's a thousand years ago. And, you know, the, uh, the Ramban said, well, Mr. Shalchle said a thousand years, big deal. You'll know the Mashiach is here when he destroys Rome. That's pretty much what he said. When the Catholic Church is destroyed, you'll know the Mashiach is here. That's pretty much what he said to the king. Um, shook a lot of guts. Uh, now, the point is that there has developed among the Jews, because we are as a people, we don't do well with depression. Okay? The Jews indulge in depression, but at the same time, they immediately look for Nechama. It's a Jewish trait. 
I'm serious. I'm not being funny about this. It's a rabbinic trait. There's depression, but you immediately, immediately look for Nakama. Because too much depression can get out of hand, which we all know is true in life. On the other hand, to have no depression and play at life is nothing but a bowl of cherries is also not good. And so the way the Jewish tradition evolved was you have a dose of depression followed by, you know, some soda, <laughs> followed by Nechama. Uh, so in the Jewish tradition, uh, you know, like we say, you know, that's how you finish Eicha, uh, as we all know. Um, look at the end of the Book of Kings. Look at the end of the Book of Chronicles. They say, basically, Mishra destroyed a tremendous Corbin. And then they went to end, and Cyrus came along later and and redeemed everybody some. In other words, it's got nothing to do with the story, but you have to end on something positive. This past week, when you have the Haftorah, you read from the book of Jeremiah, and the Kemisbar Recha, Hoyu El Yisrael, that you had many gods. Well, that's too depressing, so you didn't jump a few Pesukim and end on the last Pesuk, which has nothing to do with anything, but which is positive. That's a Jewish trait. So being a Jewish trait, you go to Shul, you say to Kinas, but when it comes 12 o'clock or 1 o'clock, whatever Chatzos is, you start looking for Nechama. Right? You start looking for Nechama. Um, this is expressed, as we all know, in the day, in the minute that you get up from sitting on the floor, from the, from, from the you know, low sitting. You sit on chairs after Chatzos. You can't eat. You can't this. But chairs you can sit on. Now, I want to tell you something. Throughout the history of Kali Yisrael, regardless of the halacha, people have run with this ball in various ways. And there are many interesting folk customs which are completely disapproved of by the halachic authorities, having to do with the fact that people begin to rejoice in some fashion or another after chasos, which is not right because really, 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 as you all know, you're supposed to even mourn on the 10th of all. But we can't expect that from people. But we praise those people who fast on the 10th of all, and we have customs, as we all know, that you don't eat flesheks or whatever till the next day, chatzos, and things of that nature. So really, 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 you shouldn't have any rejoicing. But the Halmonam can't do that. What I just said, that you fast on the 10th of all, and stuff like that, that's for Hasidim. I mean, the pious, the Hasidim, you know, the ones who want to be Hasidim, in the old traditional sense of the word. But the whole oilum is not chasinim. And for the oilum, you have to do a so-called minimalistic, you understand? Uh, basic. But it's always a trick. You know, how much basic, how much not? So there's a, a whole variety of customs that arose. I know a guy, I'm not going to say any name. I know a guy who's from an old from family in Baltimore. And, you know, Orthodox, let's put it this way, Shammah Shabbos, as I know them. From long ago, not learned, anything like that, playing regular ball botting, Sharma shops from way back when. And the guy told me in Florida once, he said, You know, when I grew up, I was in this, I'm not going to say any names, and I was in this in the show, and I repeat, the guy's father, uh, so we went to show, we said Kinnis in the morning, and fasted. I repeat, this guy was a Sharma Shabbos family. But then, Chasos, we died Mincha, and then the fast was over. I was like, Shocked! <laughs> Right? But that's just, you know, that's how the po- folk people did it. Now, I know a lot of people not like that. I certainly didn't grow up like that. And I know a lot of other people didn't grow up like that. But you also have people who grew up like I just described. So keep that in mind. And um, 
in uh, Chayyotim, which I always love to read because it's always historical. Chayyotim is always dissing the popular Hamun practice. He's a scholar. He lived in Vilna. But the Oilam does what the Oilam does. The Oilam was not learned. They didn't read the beer grow, you know. And they did what they did. And he says over here, um, Right? Whoever eats some tishabot, no good. If you more for Yishalayim, it's a good thing. You got to keep tishabot till the fence is over. So apparently, there's a custom... People went to the bathhouse or something like that. They all went to take a shower prior to Mincha. Meaning, I understand it to mean at midday. Right? Uh, or maybe they got Mincha late in the afternoon. But before Mincha, you took to take a shower. Who minik shall burus? That's a minik of stupid people. This was a popular... See, so he's admitting. It was a widespread traditional Jewish practice. He's a halachic expert, so he's disapproving it with the language of halacha. Today we have an oilam, which is going through day schools at least, and thinks that we have a more uh, normative and halachically practicing seaboard. But it wasn't the way our ancestors weren't like that. Now, I repeat, they were chasidim, always, and chasidos, and they were in the other extreme. If you look in the Shulchan Aruch, he talks about the fact that there were people who fasted for three weeks. You hear what I just said? Not Tishva. Fasted for three It's in the Shulchan. Fasted for three weeks. Now, it's a minute. It's a minute of Chasinim. Obviously, you don't have to do that. It's like a Ramadan. Fasted for three weeks. Baby. Okay? So they ate at night. They fasted all day. That's the other extreme. So this is the classic Jewish communities of old. Right? And those classic communities, you had left, right, and center. And so the left would probably be along the lines that we're describing now, something like that. Uh, maybe the leftist people don't fast, but you know, certainly you look for leniencies, they can only take a shower. And the right would be people are fasting for three weeks. So he says over here, Ami Arts Menashim Hoy Nogin came, Lechazekis Libon Shanol the Mashiach Batishabov to buck him up, to give him encouragement that the same day which we mourn our national catastrophe, don't allow that to become depression and lose hope. Because that would be the worst possible thing. We want to commemorate destruction based on Megiddo, but not in the sense of Vay is mere, and we Jews are always screwed over, then we suffer, and that's our fate. No. It's a hope. Lachazik is Libon, Shanolin Mashiach Batishabov, Mashiach Lovo, that the Mashiach is going to come one day. It doesn't exactly, right? doesn't exactly mean, uh, you know, uh, you know the, the I mean the, you know the Mashiach is going to come exactly on this day, but the Mashiach is coming. Right? A firm Jew doesn't do this. Fine, I understand. A firm Jew doesn't do that. Now, what's the point? If you're of this nature, then already, and this is my understanding of it. I can only do that. If it's that nature, so. Um, Tisha B'Av is constructed that in the nighttime and in the morning, 
you're supposed to feel a depression. But starting in the afternoon, you still maintain all the customs, all the restrictions, but you start to think of uh, a better future. And you recite Nachim and Micha as a result of that. Get it? That's my point. Because Nachim means you're pleading with Sion to give his Nechama and bring a Gula and bring a Mashiach from Harry Amen and all that stuff. And that puts the person in a better frame of mind. So it was considered to be inappropriate by whoever made of the Nusach Ashkenaz and even the Nusach Svarad to be talking this way in Myriv on Sunday night, on, on Saturday night. Because in Myriv, you're in the depression mode. You're not talking about Nechama. Nechama comes later. We're talking about Chorban, uh, Avelos. Uh, Same thing in the morning. You're spending all morning, you're supposed to, in the Kinos, recounting all the terrible sufferings. So you're supposed to devote that time for the Avelis. When you finish with all that, it's already Mincha time. So, although you maintain the uh, the customs, now it's 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 appropriate to start getting some hope. And you bring up Nachim, right? And you say, very frankly, Sion is bitter, and so on and so forth. But what do you end with? You burn Jerusalem in fire. And then you will return Jerusalem in Aish. And this is the Eretz of, um what's the right word? Uh, Medrash, tradition, that the base of Middle should come back in Aish. That Rashi famously refers to in uh, Rosh Hashanah, I remember, when it says, Yom Hanif Kulu Asr, that, you know, they made that Takana, uh, you, know, you know what I'm talking about, Yochum Zakai, in the last part, where, uh, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about, you say that um, nowadays, you don't eat the Chodesh uh, until the third day of Passover, no, it's the second day, is when they used to bring the um, carbon, and there's no more carbon, and Medaraisa, from the morning one, you can eat the Chodesh. But he said, Yom Hanif Kul Wasser. Wait till the third day of Passover to start eating the Chodesh. That's when it becomes Yashan. Why? And people start eating and they don't realize now you have a carbon. How can it come back so fast? I mean, to build a Bezimish is a major project. It took Shlomo Melch years. No, says Rashi. Uh, Hashem could bring down a, a base of Mishnah fire. No, this could be Yeshua Shem Karafayan. Now, I don't know exactly how you treat that, but it's a powerful motif. It should be treated by us as a powerful motif um, to think about on Tishabab because them it says our enemies always playing mind games with us. The old shot of terrorism and things like that, political warfare, which I see the Iranians very sneaky are playing all the time. I don't know if you pay attention to it. I don't think the public knows the most part how to analyze the news. At least I flatter myself that way. A lot a lot of the Iranians are behind everything. And it's it's a mind games. Trying to make the the Jews discouraged and all the rest of it. And they're doing a pretty good job if twenty five percent of American Jewry has already bought the lie, hook, line, and sinker, there's one as an apartheid state. Um what happens when it comes fifty percent or seventy five percent? Then we're gonna gawk the I mean, right? So the counter to that is to mechazik yourself not to give in to their narrative, to maintain our narrative. And for that, you need the kind of things I've been talking about. You need a world in which you don't get allow yourself to get depressed.
right? And uh, that's only through Amuno. And through Amuno, even for supernatural, even but So I'm just mentioning this as I conclude. So you consider this prayer, which we're all going to recite, of course. On Mincha, I would apply even the current events. And to the idea that you double down. And you say, whatever these guys say, we're going to hold in Yerushalayim, and we'll get it back in the base of Mishnah, all the rest of it. And that gives us the um, the koach to resist all the media and the blandishments and all the baloney that they throw at you so that their they're words fall on, 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 um, you know, on hard ground. Uh, if we do that, then the prayer of Nachim is only not only one of historical memory, but it becomes one that we can use as a political weapon currently. And that's one of the things that tefillah is. Among other things, tefillah is a political weapon for us news nowadays. The Chazal constructed it that way. Not of art. They constructed it that way. And we should use it in that sense as well. With that, I wish everybody uh, an easy fast. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.